Amen. Okay, I think without any question at all, there, there have been some days that have changed the course of history, haven't there? Days like 9-11 and the subsequent war on terror, September the 3rd, 1939, Britain declaring war on Germany. Days that have changed history. But there are also days which, if not exactly history upending, are nevertheless life-changing, like the day you passed your driving test, or if you have passed your driving test, okay, or, um, uh, or um, the day you got that job, or the day that you got married, or the day a child was born. There are some days, you know, not exactly history upending, but days after which life is never quite the same again. Yet, of any such day, okay, of all such days, you know, history upending, life changing, none of them compares to the first Easter Sunday. Because whatever you think happened that day, okay, whether you're here this morning and you're agnostic or an atheist or whether you're a Christian, it is hard to dispute that this one day, the first Easter Sunday, has left an indelible mark on humanity. Because if you think about it, it is that day, the first Easter Sunday, that explains how Christianity, starting off with a bunch of fishermen in Roman-occupied Judea, conquered an empire. And how, flowing from that, have come all these multiple and diverse societal goods, like the concept of human rights, or prison reform, or the emancipation of slaves, or the protection of the unborn, the newborn, and the elderly. They've all flown, they've all flowed out of Christianity, which has flowed out of this first Easter Sunday. Okay, and there's a reason for that kind of impact. And that is that the first Easter Sunday has proved, it's proved life and history changing, fundamentally because it's heart changing. You see, in today's passage that we're looking at that Hannah read to us, Jesus asks Mary two, I think, incredibly poignant questions. Verse 15. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And I think it is understanding the answer to those two questions that has the power to explain why the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead is the answer to your doubts, to your tears, to your fears, and to the seeming pointlessness of life. That's what we're going to look at. It's the answer to your doubts, to your tears, to your fears, and the seeming pointlessness of life. First one then. That Jesus and his resurrection is the answer to your doubts. Okay, look at verse 1. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark. What do you think she was looking for? Okay, she's come to a tomb, hasn't she? What do you think she was looking for at that tomb that morning? It's what anyone who goes to any tomb or any graveside is looking for, isn't it? Someone she cares about has died, in Jesus' case has been executed, and she's going to honour his body. Except when she gets there, verse 1, she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And she knows that that can only mean one thing. And she runs and tells Peter and John, verse 2, 
They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. I want you to look at those verbs. Let's get a bit grammatical, shall we? Okay, look at the verbs. They have taken the Lord, they have laid him. She does not think that Jesus has walked out of this tomb, does she? The stone has been moved, the tomb is empty, so it stands to reason someone must have carried Jesus' body out of the tomb. Someone must have put him somewhere. And she repeats that unerring logic to the angels when she returns. Okay, they ask her, verse 13, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And without knowing who it is she's talking to, thinking he's the gardener, she says to Jesus, verse 15, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him. Okay, so when Jesus asks her, verse 15, whom are you seeking? The answer's obvious, isn't it? She's seeking a corpse. She's seeking a dead Jesus. She did not come to the tomb the way you probably came here this morning with a spring in your step, feeling good about it, ready to sing some great songs, rejoice in the triumph of Christ. She had watched Jesus die and she had come here to tend to his dead body. That's who she's looking for. Okay, so this morning... If you have doubts about Christianity, maybe you're exploring the Christian faith, maybe you wouldn't even say you're that far along the path, maybe you're just beginning to investigate it, or maybe you're a Christian, but you are wobbling in your faith. Okay, this morning, I want you to look at Mary. Take a look at her and ask yourself the question Jesus asks her. Who was she seeking? Who's she seeking? What is she doing at that tomb? And yet Mary's life was transformed beside that tomb. Why? How? Because she was seeking a corpse. What she found was Jesus risen from the dead. Okay, but it's not just Mary seeking or what Mary was seeking that should make you doubt your doubts or examine your doubts. It's who she is, because who is she? She's a woman, a woman whose testimony, if she was standing up in a court of law, no one would have listened to because she was a woman. Okay, so if you were John, you know, our passage is from John's gospel this morning. If you were John and you were making this all up, you would never have a woman as your number one star witness to the resurrection, would you? Because you know nobody's going to believe her. So why would you have her? Why does he have her as his number one star witness to the resurrection? Because she was. Because this actually happened. Okay, but if Mary wasn't expecting this, if she was going looking for a corpse and what she found was a risen Jesus, it's not like the disciples were either, were they? Verse 9, For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Okay, just like Mary did not go to the tomb in eager expectation, so the guys, they are not sat at home on the edge of their seat waiting for someone to burst in and go, it's happened, he's risen. That's not what they're thinking, is it? 
Okay, just like Mary, as far as they're concerned, Jesus is dead. Okay, think about that this morning. Because John is writing this gospel, he's very clear about it. He's writing it to encourage you and me to believe, to persuade us to do that. But if that is the case, why paint himself and Peter in a less than flattering light? That you know, he's asking you to believe, and he's being honest and saying, We didn't believe. We weren't expecting this. They didn't understand. Why, why do that? Why put himself in a negative light unless it just happened to be true? Okay, but if Mary found the tomb empty, what did Peter and John find? Verses four, and four to seven. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter, probably because Peter's been eating too many fish pies. The other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, on Sunday mornings, we've been going through uh, the Gospel of Mark. And almost every Sunday, as we uh, take a text from uh, the Bible, there is something in the Bible text that tells you this has got to be an eyewitness account. It's just got to be. And nearly every time I end up cutting it out of the sermon, okay, because we don't have time to cover it. But nearly every week there's something there. It may be the way that Mark uses names. And if a name is common, like James or Simon, he clarifies which James or Simon he's talking about. And if, an, if a name is not that common, he doesn't need to do that. Or he tells us about boats traveling with Jesus' boat that play no part in the subsequent story. But he tells, them about, tells us about them anyway because he remembers them being there. Or he repeats himself like... These guys removed a roof. And would you believe it? They actually removed a roof. Which you don't do if you are making a story up and you are just writing it down as you go along. But which you do all the time when you are recounting and telling a story that actually happened. And here with John, you get another eyewitness detail. Okay, it is this cloth that had been placed on Jesus' head, now sitting apart from all the other cloths. It is the kind of detail you would remember if this morning was seared on your memory. Okay, so look at the cloth sitting apart by itself. Look at Mary in search of a corpse. Look at Peter and John failing to understand and doubt your doubts. Examine your doubts. Let these things answer your doubts. You see, your doubts matter. You know, because as with Mary, who you are looking for matters. You see, if you think that Jesus is dead and out there somewhere, he's, the dust of his bones are being blown about by some Palestinian wind, that is going to affect the way that you live. Or 
If you think that 2,000 years ago, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, really did physically rise from the dead, that is going to profoundly change the way you live, one way or the other. Okay, who you're looking for, what you think happened at that tomb, is going to change the kind of moral decisions you make. I mean, let's just think of them. For, for you guys, for, for you young guys who aren't, aren't yet married, it's going to change the kind of person you're looking for as a spouse. For all of us, it's going to affect how you measure success in life. It's going to influence what you think your money is for and how you're going to use it. It's going to influence how you raise your kids and just about any other decision you face. It all hinges on... Who are you looking for? What do you think happened at that tomb? Okay, listen to what Paul wrote. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, one of Paul's letters where Paul unpacks the implications of Christ's resurrection. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Okay, so Paul is saying, I mean, you've got to ask a question, haven't you? Why? Why does Paul say that Christians, if you're a Christian here this morning, you are to be pitied more than anybody else if Christ has not been raised from the dead? If we're wrong about that, you are to be pitied more than anybody else. Why? Because if Christ has been raised from the dead, then he's the Lord. And we are going to live like that. So we're going to live the way he calls us to live. We're going to serve and sacrifice. And we're going to love our neighbour. And we're going to use our money. And we're going to spend and be spent for him and for others. We're going to live lives of sacrificial, life-laying-down love. If you're wrong about that, then you're wasting your time living like that. Rather, as Paul says... If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Let's party. And here's the thing, okay, if deep down you have this gnawing doubt that Jesus wasn't raised, you won't have the confidence to live the way that he calls us to live. You will keep one foot in Christianity and one foot in the world. You'll want to be, you want to be parting, eating and drinking with the world, but you're going to be feeling guilty about it. As someone has said, you'll have too much sin to enjoy your religion and too much religion to enjoy your sin. But listen, when you know that Christ was raised from the dead, you know that there is a world beyond this world. You know that there is a life beyond this life. You know that judgment and reward lie up ahead, and that puts everything else into perspective. And so the resurrection of Christ from the dead, the empty tomb, becomes this motivating and clarifying power in your life. A life to live, or a power, a force in your life to live a life of service, not self-centeredness. Of worship, not self-absorption of sacrifice, not self-promotion. Guys, our self-focused, self-obsessed societies need those virtues, those Christian virtues, more than ever. 
So this morning, look at Mary. Look at Peter and John. Look at that face cloth. Doubt your doubts. Let them answer your doubts. And let that transform the way you live. Secondly, Jesus and his resurrection is the answer to your tears. Okay, look at verse 11. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And first the angels, and then Jesus asks her, Woman, why are you weeping? It's obvious, isn't it? She's weeping out of grief and loss and confusion. It's why any of us weep. You know, we can weep, as Mary was, we can weep over the death of a loved one. You can weep over the death of a dream. We can weep over the grief of loneliness or when we feel confused or overwhelmed by our circumstances. We can weep at our failure and our sin. We can weep at the mess that we've made of our lives or of other people's lives. But for whatever reason you weep, where are you supposed to go to have those tears wiped away? Where are you going to go? Do I read a, a quote this week, a great quote from Chaucer's The Knight's Tale? Okay, I just have to confess, I have never read Chaucer. Okay, I've never read The Knight's Tale, but I read this quote and I thought it was great. And it says, All men know that the true good is happiness, and all men seek it, but for the most part by wrong roots, like a drunk man who knows he has a house, but can't find his way home. In other words, in all of our sadness, in all of our longing for happiness, we go down all of these wrong roads in search of it. Here we stumble along hoping to find something that maybe numbs the pain, the relational pain, or that turns grief to gladness. Okay, we know that we have a home. We know there is such a thing as happiness. But like a drunk man, we can't quite find it or at least not a happiness that lasts. Okay, the psalmist says, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Except with most of the things that we try, the night comes back soon enough again, doesn't it? The, the darkness and the weeping returns. It's as if they're just temporarily postponed. Okay, so this Easter Sunday, look again at Mary, because something turns her around, doesn't it? Something wipes away Mary's tears and she goes from weeping in front of the tomb to standing in front of the disciples. In verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. So what did she see? What turned this woman's grief around? Okay, verses 14 to 16. She turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni. You see, if this life is all there is, if there is no resurrection of the dead, you can only find joy by pretending. Okay, by pretending that life and all the great moments of life actually have any meaning. 
which they don't, if atheism and secularism are correct. You can only find joy by trying your hardest not to think about the never-ending darkness that is going to engulf you and all that you love. All that secularism and secularist atheism can offer you, the only, the only thing they can offer you by way of joy is getting you to ignore your end, that nothing has any ultimate meaning, nothing has any ultimate purpose, everything's just going to implode and cease to exist. They can only offer you joy by getting you to ignore that fact and pretend it's not the case. But if with, Ma if with Mary you know that Christ is risen from the dead. You know that death is not the end. And then joy doesn't come by ignoring your end. Bizarrely, it comes by contemplating it. It comes by realizing that however bad things are now, God is working everything for your good. And one day, he, justice is going to be done. There is going to be a judgment. Every wrong will be righted. And every tear will be wiped away. And joy comes not by staggering down all the wrong roads like Chaucer's drunk man, but by realizing Christ has secured for you a future beyond all your imaginings. The future that all your searching for happiness now has been pointing you towards. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Last Battle, of the um, Narnia Chronicles, the characters, they finally get to enter Aslan's country. And Lewis writes, it was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was thinking and feeling. I've come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. Come further up and further in. There is no limit to the joy that God has in store for those he, he knows by name. Come further up, come further in to those he knows by name. You see, how must Jesus have said Mary, I think this is one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. How must Jesus have said Mary that made Mary lift her tear-stained eyes and realize it's him, he's alive? How tenderly did he say her name? Listen, he meets you in your sadness and he calls you by your name with that same tenderness so that you would lift your head, maybe your tear-stained eyes, and know he is risen from the dead and all shall be well. Come further up, come further in. And it is the fact that he is risen that can lift the grief of our sin and our failure. You know, in Romans 4, Paul writes that righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see, you and I, we are weighed down by our sin when we think we still have to carry it. 
But at the cross, as we've sung, Christ carried it for us. And he was delivered for our trespasses. For all those times, we have trespassed down Chaucer's wrong roots. But as Jesus stands alive in front of Mary, he tells her and he tells us all, his sacrifice, that sacrifice, has been accepted and you are forgiven. He was raised for our justification, raised that you and I might be declared not guilty because at the cross, he stood in place of us who are guilty. You see, if we live under a cloud of guilt, we live as if Christ has not been raised. But guys, he has been raised. If we live under a cloud of guilt, it is to live as if all there is is night and never dawn. Look again at when Christ's resurrection happened. Verse 1. On the first day of the week, while it was still dark, because sin and sorrow are the dark before the dawn. But church, Christ is risen. Morning is coming. A new week has begun. So for whatever reason you might weep, see him alive this morning and let him wipe away your tears. Thirdly, Jesus and his resurrection is the answer to our fears. Jesus greets Mary in the garden and says to her, verse 17, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now, why tell them that? It's interesting, isn't it? Okay, why, why not tell them, go and tell them, go and tell my brothers I'm risen. Why tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father? Well, I think it's because Jesus knows what is dominating their thinking right now. Verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Fear can be imprisoning, can't it? You can be imprisoned by your fears. Fear can be paralyzing. I mean, think of those times when you knew what the right thing to do was or you knew what the right thing to say was. And how many times, but you didn't do it, you didn't say it, how many times was it fear that was swaying your decision-making? Fear of, fear of the consequences if you did that, or fear of what others might think if you did or said the right thing? And so if these disciples and you and I are not to live imprisoned by fear, we need to know that someone greater than anything else that could happen to us is in control. And not just greater, but good. So good that he will only let that which is for our ultimate good happen to us. That's what we need to know. We need to know that someone is in control and that he is good. So Jesus tells Mary, go and tell them that. Go and tell them they're my brothers and I'm ascending to my father and their father. I am ascending to the place of ultimate power and authority. Go tell them that. Go tell them they have nothing to fear. And then he comes behind their locked doors. He enters the prison of their fears. Verses 19 and 20. 
Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And they go from hiding in fear to the greatest missionary movement the world has ever seen. Why? How? Because the resurrection of Christ from the dead and his ascension to the place of power is the answer to every fear. It's the answer to our fear of others because it tells us he's in control and he's for me. So in comparison, what can anyone else do to me? Well, you might say, well, sure, they can kill me. Okay, they can kill us. True. But Christ's resurrection is also the answer to our fear of death. Because as Paul says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, you know, our cherry tree has just come out in blossom. Okay, what are, you know, fruit season's coming up, harvest has come up in the next few months. What do the first fruits of the harvest tell you? The first fruits tell you the rest of the harvest is coming. And Christ's resurrection is the first fruits because it is just the first of many. Do you know one day you will be raised? Okay, one day you're going to be planted. Okay, one day you will be buried. One day people will come to your graveside. But one day you will be raised. And knowing that, it just has the power to break the power of the fear of death. Okay, there's one more contemporary fear that I want, just want to highlight that I think the resurrection of Jesus answers. And that is, maybe this is more for you young guys, that is the nagging fear of who you are or who you're supposed to be. It's identity anxiety. You see, our current culture tells you, you have got to decide for yourself who you are. You've got to form your own identity. But listen, none of us can bear the weight of that. Instead, look at Jesus telling Mary, go tell my brothers. And he calls his father their father. And this morning, know that is who you are. That's who you are. You are one of Christ's brothers or sisters. You are a beloved son or daughter of God. That's who you are. You are Jesus is not ashamed to call you his family. So this morning, see him alive and find your identity in him. Okay, lastly, Jesus and his resurrection is the answer to pointlessness, the seeming pointlessness of life. Okay, standing among the disciples, Jesus says, verse 21, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And Jesus' resurrection gave their lives purpose, didn't it? It gave their lives meaning. It gave them a message and a mission. In comparison, all secularism can offer you is existential angst. What's the point of my life? Why am I here? What's the point of anything? To which secularism has no answer. It has no answer to the most important questions of life. But Christianity does. 
You see, in 1 Corinthians 15, okay, having spent 57 verses unpacking the implications of Christ's resurrection, in the last verse, Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You see, if secular atheism is correct, and there is no resurrection from the dead, if this life really is all there is, and one day the universe is gonna collapse or blow up or whatever, then everything you do, all the work of your hands, it is all gonna be forgotten. Everything you do ultimately is pointless because there's no point to anything, but it's not correct. Because when you know that Christ is risen, when you see him talking with Mary, speaking with the disciples and sending them out into the world, you know that whatever he has given you to do, your labor in the Lord, that's not in vain. That as he sent them, so he sends you. And that has the power to fill your life with meaning. It gives you life meaning, but it also gives your life a message because Christ is risen and that fills everything with meaning and it changes everything. And it sends you out on a mission to live for his glory and to spend your life living for the good of others. Let's pray.